Welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutille. Right off the top, I want to thank our sponsors, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, the University of Toronto Press, the University of British Columbia Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. If you really apply yourself and try to remember the bit of Canadian history you studied when you were 12 or 13 years old and in grade 7, you might remember hearing about the Fenians. For me, they were a mysterious group of lazy people. The reason for this was that I attended French language school and the teacher kept referring to the Fenians, and Fenians in French means lazy. Well, the people we're going to talk about today were the furthest thing from lazy, and my guest is the exact opposite. He's David A. Wilson, Professor of History and Celtic Studies at the University of Toronto and the co-editor of the Dictionary of Canadian Biography. In addition to his performing brilliantly on the Tin Whistle, he has written and edited countless books, and his latest is Canadian Spy Story. Irish Revolutionaries and the Secret Police. It's published by McGill-Queens University Press. We reached David Wilson at his office in Toronto. David, it's a pleasure to welcome you to Witness to Yesterday. Thank you, Patrice. It's great to be here. David, you're the witness to yesterday for this episode. What happened on September 18th, 1865. September the 18th, 1865, was the day when John A. Macdonald realized that the Fenians on both sides of the border, in the United States and in Canada, needed to be taken seriously. And this marked the beginning of the revamping of the Canadian secret police force. Now, the Canadian secret police force had initially been formed not to prevent an American-based invasion of Canada, but to prevent a Canadian-based attack on the United States, specifically from Southern Confederates using Canada as a base during the American Civil War. When the Civil War ended in April of 1865, the secret police force was gradually wound down. But in September, news started to come out from the United States that some elements within the Fenian Brotherhood were planning to attack Canada. And under these circumstances, MacDonald ordered that the secret police force should be ramped up again to deal with a prospective problem, and one that he took very seriously indeed. Well, he, you, you write in your book, you, you quote MacDonald saying, uh, I shall spare no expense in watching them on both sides of the line. This is pretty serious. It was serious. In fact, he did spare expenses. One of the uh, problems that the uh, the detectives faced, uh, particularly in the early years, was that they weren't being paid regularly. Uh, that was a, a, a significant difficulty for them. But the basic point uh, that uh, the Fenian Brotherhood needed to be taken seriously remains. And one of the most interesting things about MacDonald's approach to this was that although he recognized the seriousness of the Fenian Brotherhood, he did not state that publicly. In fact, um, in May of 1868, so we've moved on two and a half years later, uh, he wrote to a friend that the Fenian organization has gone to a very large and dangerous extent in Canada. And then he adds, I said as little about it as possible. (laughs) 
I endeavour as much as possible to keep matters quiet. And I think a lot of historians uh, also uh, you know, uh, were, were fooled by the, the public outward calm of MacDonald uh, and underestimated the seriousness of the uh, threats facing Canada. Not to say that Canada was ever in danger of actually uh, being overrun by Fenians. That wouldn't have happened. Uh, but there were serious risks involved here. And I think we need uh, to understand these risks in terms of the Fenian strategy. So, David, in a nutshell, who were these Fenians and, and did they actually constitute a real threat to Canada? The Fenian Brotherhood, as it became known, was uh, founded in Ireland in 1858. And the idea was to uh, organize secret societies within Ireland that would be ready uh, to launch a revolution when Britain was involved in an international war. England's difficulty, England and Britain they used interchangeably, England's difficulty was Ireland's opportunity, uh, was the watchword. Uh, and uh, the problem that they faced was that, uh, that Britain was not going to war. The Fenians pinned their hopes on France as the adversary who would fit the bill, but France kept selfishly letting the Fenians down by refusing to get embroiled in an international war with Britain. However, where France failed, the United States might uh, fit the bill. And the United States had uh, hundreds of thousands of Irish Catholic immigrants who had come in during the famine. They had bitter memories of what they had experienced during the famine what they'd experienced on the so-called coffin ships crossing the Atlantic. There was a great deal of anger within Irish America or Irish Catholic America. The question was, how could that be channeled? Now, once the Fenian Brotherhood in Ireland uh, had been subjected to repression, uh, this was September of 1865, the same date that we began with, uh, the, the possibility of a revolution in Ireland diminished so one faction of the Fenian Brotherhood, they were known as the Senate Wing, decided that they should switch their attention northwards to Canada. And their thinking was that if they could get a foothold in Canada with the tacit acquiescence of the American government, they would, they would be in a position where thousands more Irish Canadians, Irish Americans rather, would come in uh, to Canada and support them. And they, and they hoped that this would trigger an Anglo-American war. Now, if that happened, this was the thinking, if there was an Anglo-American war, what would happen would replicate what had already happened in 1861 during the Trent crisis in the Civil War, when Britain had shipped 10,000 troops to British North America uh, to fend off a potential American attack. If that repeated itself, you had British troops crossing the Atlantic at the same time that the Fenians were able to hold on to uh, land uh, that they had occupied in Canada. This would in turn inspire revolutionaries back in Ireland to take advantage of the lacuna, of the gap in, in British troops, and launch their own revolution. And by the time it was over, they believed, um, Canada would be liberated from uh, the British Empire and would join the American Empire of Liberty, and Ireland would become an independent republic. And, and for this to work, 
three conditions had to be fulfilled. One, the American government had to play ball. Um, and the American government, uh, William Seward, the Secretary of State, uh, meeting uh, the Fenian leadership uh, in October of 1865, said that uh, the government would, quote, acknowledge accomplished facts. Now, this led the Fenians to believe that uh, America would stand, stand aside. In fact, Seward had no intention of uh, allowing those facts to be accomplished in the first place. Um, but he, he, wanted, he wanted as far as possible and as long as possible not to lose the Irish Catholic American vote. Uh, so just as the Fenians were trying to use the Americans, uh, the Americans were trying to manipulate the Fenians. That was one condition. That was one condition that you know, didn't work for the Fenians. The other was they believed French Canadians trapped like Irish Catholics in Canada, trapped in a Protestant British Empire, uh, would not oppose the Fenian Brotherhood. Uh, that they would be, um, at worst, neutral, at best, would support the Fenians. And then the third condition was Irish Catholics in Canada. Now, there was a Fenian underground in Canada, and it, it was composed almost entirely of adult males who had immigrated who were Catholics, who had immigrated from Ireland um, during, uh, just before, during, or immediately after the famine. So there was a Fenian network uh, in Canada, but most Irish Catholics did not support the invasion strategy uh, of these Fenians, of the Senate Fenians. So the assumptions which the Fenian, upon which the Fenians operated, while seeming plausible, were in fact unfounded. Now you can see we can see why Macdonald would be concerned about this kind of activity. You're saying that there could be a threat to Canadian sovereignty. There could be a threat for Canada to become embroiled in some sort of a dispute between Americans and and the British. And a third issue would be uh, French Canadian discontent if it was in fact you know fomented by the Irish. Macdonald decides to set up uh, a, a secret police. How did he go about this? He drew on uh, two people, one in Canada West, present-day Ontario, one in Canada East, present-day Quebec. In Canada West, the uh, head of the secret police, which actually had a very innocuous name, the Western Frontier Constabulary, uh, was Gilbert McMicken, um, described by MacDonald as a cool, shrewd, and determined man who had been involved in uh, cross-border economic activities, uh, who was a strong supporter of the Conservatives, uh, and who did indeed turn out to be a cool and shrewd and determined head of the secret police force in Canada West. His counterpart in Canada East was Frederick William Ermatinger, uh, the son of uh, a fur trader and an indigenous woman who had uh, fought in Spain during the Carlist War, uh, who had come back to Montreal and uh, who had significant military experience that McMicken in Ontario did not have, um, and joined the Montreal Water Police, uh, which uh, and led the Montreal Water Police, which was uh, initially designed to, as what the name suggests, to impose order on the waterfront, but was ex expanded to deal with civil unrest generally in Montreal. And members of the Montreal Water Police were brought in to the secret police force in Canada East. In Canada West, Gilbert McMicken had to start from scratch. 
So he liaised with uh, William Prince, the uh, chief of police in Toronto, who recommended various people. It turns out that uh, many of the people who were recommended to join the secret police force uh, were not suitable for the job. In fact, uh, about half of them ran into trouble. Some, the numbers were small, by the way. They never got above 20 people in Canada West and probably a bit, a bit larger in Canada East. Uh, but the ones in Canada West we know much more about. And I'll just stop there and tell you why that's the case. Uh, it's the MacDonald Papers that's the great source for this. Uh, Gilbert McMicken reporting to MacDonald. Well, we'll get it. We'll get into that later. We'll get into that when we talk about your sources. But and and, and so, but let's let's keep going about this Gilbert McMicken because he's such an important uh, a fellow. I mean, he's a businessman, but he's also a political figure in Canada West on his own. Is he is he not a member of Parliament? When he's tapped by McDonald, I mean, he's a very good friend politically and I guess personally of McDonald. He's a good friend politically and personally of McDonald. And at some stage in the past, and I've not been able to find this out, um, but at some stage in the past, he helped McDonald. It looks like he took the fall for McDonald. It may be in connection with a banking scandal. It's very difficult to say. But he says, I have suffered bonds for your sake. And uh, presumably he was locked up for a while. Um, uh, so, um, so John A. owed him. Uh, now, there's a, there's another fellow. There's another there's another member of Parliament, and and you're the expert on this member of Parliament. That's Thomas Darcy McGee, uh, a proud Catholic Irishman. Uh, you've written a two volume biography, David, on on McGee. Uh, what was Darcy McGee's role in all this? Did he play a role? He suffered terribly. I mean, he was killed by a Fenian in uh, 1868. What was Darcy McGee's role in all this? Well, he was a strong supporter of the secret police, and he actually ran his own network of uh, spies in Montreal. And this is interesting because in 1848, when he had been a revolutionary in Ireland, uh, he gave several speeches denouncing spies and informers, uh, uh, and uh, and here he is in the mid 1860s saying to Irish Catholics, uh, we need to get over uh, the, the stigmatization of informers. They're very, very important um, in protecting Canada. Um, and of course, within Irish nationalist uh, uh, perspectives, uh, this marked him out as a traitor. Um, and the very fact that he ran his own spy network uh, in Montreal um, and the very fact that he publicized uh, some of the information that he received from his network and indeed from the Canadian government um, really, I think, contributed to his assassination. Uh, in 1867, uh, during an election campaign against uh, Bernard Devlin, another Irish Catholic, uh, Macdonald, sorry, McGee tried to uh, demonstrate that Devlin uh, was in cahoots with the Fenians in Montreal, which in fact he was. Uh, Devlin was not a Fenian himself, but he drew on Fenian support. And in the course of, uh, of the election campaign, McGee uh, published a series of articles in the Montreal Gazette in which uh, he outlined the, uh, the information that he'd received from spies and informers about the Fenian Brotherhood in Montreal. And as a result, uh, at meetings of Bernard Devlin against McGee, there were cries from the crowd, he's a traitor, you know, he deserves to be shot. And the man who was, who was ex basically charged, tried and executed uh, for the assassination of McGee 
uh, Patrick James Whalen, after one of those meetings, went to McGee's house uh, with the intention of assassinating him, but did not go through with it. Uh, so um, McGee is really in the center of this. And McGee is, the, McGee is if you like, the, the polar opposite of the Fenians. He had been a revolutionary once himself, and uh, he rejected Fenianism with all the zeal of a, of a convert. And he also knew how Fenianism operated. Uh, he knew the emotional appeal it had, and he knew the ambivalence in Irish Catholic culture there was towards the revolutionary. And one of McGee's central aims was to cut through that ambivalence, and in doing so, he hoped to uh, isolate and marginalize the Fenian Brotherhood in Canada. Um, I argue in, in volume two of the biography that uh, in some respects that backfired, uh, that when when forced to choose uh, uh, many Irish Catholics, uh, not a majority, but a significant number of, uh, significant percentage of Irish Catholics um, did not side with McGee on this issue. That did not mean that they were all rampant Fenians, but they did not side with McGee on this issue. Okay, so let's, I mean, I think a lot of our listeners are going to be shocked uh, to discover that Johnny MacDonald ran what you call from the very beginning, can a Canadian secret police. So you're drawing us a, a picture here of MacDonald, who's the Attorney General of Canada West at this time, uh, and, and obviously uh, the Premier or Co-Premier or Vice-Premier of, 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 uh, of the United Province of Canada. You've got McMicken in uh, Canada West. You've got the spirit of, uh, and you've got Darcy McGee, who's running a spy ring of his own. Um, and you've got people in in Quebec or Canada East. Um, how is this spy ring, we're going to use that expression, organized? Is it run? And I guess I'll, I'll, I guess I really should preempt myself and ask you the, the classic Champlain Society question about your sources. You were saying just a few minutes ago that the picture of the Canadian espionage ring uh, it really does feed through John A. Macdonald, and you could see this through his correspondence. What can you tell us about this correspondence on spy rings? It feeds through Macdonald from Canada West. It feeds through Georges-Étienne Cartier in Canada East. And this is a big problem for historians um, because Cartier's papers, as I think you know, Patrice, yes. uh, were all burned. Yes. So uh, we lost a lot. What we do get from Canada East uh, are letters uh, about to MacDonald about um, spy activities um, in Montreal. So there's actually a fair amount you can work with. But in Canada West, um, the sources are amazing. I mean, there, there are many sources that I drew on uh, for this book, but the spine of them uh, consisted of 3,000 letters in the MacDonald papers from detectives in the field to their handlers, to MacDonald, and back down the chain. This is an absolute gold mine. Some historians have indeed looked at this before. Jeff Keshin wrote an article um, on Gilbert McMicken, um, and uh, Greg Keeley, uh, first the opening chapter of the book he co-wrote uh, on Secret Service, uh, the opening chapter deals with this. Um, uh, Greg Keeley's work in particular is very good, uh, but it's 20 pages, and um, it really stays necessarily uh, necessarily on the surface uh, but the deeper you go into these papers uh, the more fascinating the story or more accurately stories become uh, it's uh, 
uh, it's a world that in large part uh, had been lost and certainly uh, it's full of surprises. And it was actually through McGee that I, that I discovered uh, this material. Are we thinking, I mean, I read a picture of John A. in his East Block office on Parliament Hill, because that's what it was, 1865 at that point. They've moved in, I think. Really running the spy ring on his own? I mean, it, are we talking about a very flat hierarchy here? Or are we talking about a whole bureaucracy of people running the spy ring? We're talking about a flat hierarchy. Uh, it was McDonald. Except for the period when he was away in London uh, for the Confederation negotiations, when uh, Campbell took over, uh, and actually uh, when Campbell was in charge, Alexander Campbell, um, he uh, uh, he wanted to uh, to cut the expenses of the civil service and started laying people off. Uh, but Macdonald, it was Macdonald. Uh, he kept very close uh, reins on this. Uh, McMicken was writing to Macdonald regularly. Uh, we don't have as many letters from McDonald back to McMicken, but, uh, but, but... So it's hard to tell that McDonald's actually giving instructions. Yeah. Oh, certainly uh, McDonald gave uh, instructions at various points and gave detailed instructions. Um, there are some things we, we would like to know more about and we just don't know. I mean, McMicken at one stage, uh, faced with the, with the serious problem that they couldn't penetrate the top of the Fenian Brotherhood, and they could not before 1866. At one stage, he uh, wrote to MacDonald suggesting that they use prostitutes uh, to uh, to uh, meet the leaders of the Fenian Brotherhood uh, and get information from them that way. He even recommended a couple that he knew, <laughs> which was interesting. Um, and, and there's no reply from MacDonald on that. In fact, I don't think that strategy was followed because there's no subsequent evidence that it was. You must follow ethics, sir. <laughs> now, Populating Canada was carrying things too far. Now, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about MacDonald at this point and, and about the Canadian government's response, um, but the Fenians are active. Uh, they've tried on many occasions to attack Canada. They did it from a number of angles. Uh, in June 1866, so we're talking about uh, eight months after that uh, that commitment that McDonald makes, uh, they attack on the shores of Lake Erie at Limestone Ridge, what we call now Ridgeway. Uh, and they are successful, arguably. I mean, they do mount an assault. They do kill Canadians. They will retreat. How do you read the importance of, of Ridgeway in all this? Well, I think it can be exaggerated, the significance of Ridgeway. Uh, it's it's often um, equated with um, support for confederation and uh, the rise of national feeling in Canada. And yes, um, it certainly did contribute uh, to the rise of national feeling in Canada, that's C.P. Stacey's phrase, Although it would also need to be pointed out that that feeling was rising uh, when the threat of a Fenian raid was un, was was there, you didn't actually need a Fenian raid; you just needed the threat for national fe feeling to increase. As far as being a um, a factor uh, contributing to confederation in central Canada, uh, my answer is no. It, it didn't have it didn't have a significant impact. Uh, because confederation in uh, Canada West and Canada East was already a done deal. Uh, you can argue, you can make a different argument for New Brunswick, and that's a whole separate issue. The Fenian, the Fenian uh, abortive uh, attack on New Brunswick in April of 1866. Uh, but um, I think the, the actual um, strategic significance for Canada of the Ridgeway Raid has been significantly exaggerated. Uh, but what, what, what I think is also interesting about this is 
Um, the relationship between the secret service or the secret police and the Fenian Brotherhood in the period leading up to Ridgeway. And don't forget also the attack um, uh, at uh, Pigeon Hill as well um, in 1866 in Canada East, uh, which was occupied for a couple of days by General Samuel Spear, Fenian leader. Um, the, the secret police were taken by surprise. And this is one of the themes of Jeff Cashin's article. And he's very critical of McMicken uh, for letting this happen. Uh, I think that's an unfair criticism uh, because uh, it was virtually impossible to get to the top of the Fenian Brotherhood. The Fenians before, 1860, before June of 1866, contrary to all the images of, of uh, an organization that's riddled with informers and leaking like a sieve, the Fenians were very good at protecting their key secrets uh, up to and until uh, the the Ridgeway Raid or the Limestone Ridge Raid, um, because one of the things that the, the first of all the the detectives uh, uh, were initially inexperienced and they stuck out like sore thumbs and it was a well, it was a, it was a very dangerous occupation as you can imagine, but even those who were good at their job were only picking up the rumors and the exaggerations that the Fenian leadership were feeding the rank and file to boost morale. And, and McMicken was very much aware of this. He was no fool. He wasn't taken in by this. Um, so you were getting constant exaggerated reports from the bars, from the taverns, from the clubs, uh, but you didn't know what the leadership was thinking. And uh, this, was the, this was the big problem uh, that the secret police faced uh, up to and including uh, the Battle of Ridgeway and the incursion into Canada East later in June of 1866. Is it your impression, David, that the uh, the spy the spy ring that's organized by by McDonald and McMicken, uh, did, is it your impression that they got better with time? That they they did manage to infiltrate Fenian ranks? Absolutely, they they got better over time. And they, they shifted from observation, which got them nothing but the fog of war, or, uh, to infiltration. Uh, as a longer-term strategy, uh, they cut the numbers. Uh, the number of secret police operating uh, out of McMicken's jurisdiction was very small. And we were looking at uh, six or seven people, but they were good people uh, within, within the framework of, of what was needed. Um, and one of them, uh, one of the most interesting characters I encountered was a man named Charles Clark, uh, who was an Irish-speaking orange man. Tell us about him. Charles Clark was, um, was, as far as I can tell, was from the East Galway Gaeltacht, uh, and uh, an Irish speaker, born Catholic, uh, who was converted to Protestantism uh, sometime around the famine uh, by uh, by a man called John. Callaghan and British Mission Society operating in Ireland. So he spoke Irish, uh, he rejected Catholicism and became an orange man, moved to the United States uh, around Missouri, and then came up to Toronto to join the police force. And um, he didn't last long in the police force. Uh, he was discharged uh, because of, as Charles Clark himself put it, because of, quote, a malicious charge of a lewd girl, and then open brackets, for having improper connection with her, close brackets. And this will also set the stage for more uh, of, uh, of Charles Clark's betrayals and, uh, and sexual activities, which ultimately brought him down. 
but this is very interesting. He's fired by William Prince for this, and yet, and yet William Prince recommends him to McMicken for the secret police. He's Irish. He's Protestant. Um, he's Irish speaking. He can pass himself off as a Catholic. Um, and Charles Clark becomes Canada's best detective. He operates in Detroit. He operates in Pittsburgh. And um, he's actually uh, he's actually in the Niagara Peninsula uh, when the raid takes place. And he because he he's already got in with the Fenian Brotherhood and has a, a Fenian card. He's actually able to get into the Fenian camp of John O'Neill uh, just outside Limestone Ridge. Um, meets several of the people there, and then goes back uh, to the British and Canadian forces, to militia, basically, and reports on what he's seen. And he also fights with the Queen's Own Rifles and the, ha- the Hamilton 13th during the Battle of Limestone Ridge. Uh, and then afterwards, um, still passing himself off as a Fenian, uh, go, is put into prison cells uh, so that uh, to overhear conversations or contribute to conversations so that you can sort out who was picked up uh, by chance and who was picked up because they were Fenian. Uh, so he does all of this. But the really interesting part of his career begins later when um, he and McMicken, with uh, John A. MacDonald's uh, agreement, uh, decide that the, the Canadian government is going to set up its own Fenian cell, its own Fenian circle in Missouri, in Henry County, Missouri. And uh, Charles Clark becomes Cornelius O'Sullivan, operating out of Henry County, Missouri. So we're talking about a Canadian spying in Missouri. We are. We are indeed. <laughs> And Missouri being a hot spot of Fenian activity. Well, this is the thing. It's uh, it's it's not. So he can enlist people into a Fenian circle, a small group of people, present himself as a as a Fenian head center, as they were called. Go to New York, meet the president of the Fenian Brotherhood, William Roberts, and um, present himself uh, as uh, a true Irishman, a uh, a Fenian. He he. Uh, he becomes good friends with William Roberts and and Mrs. Roberts as well. Uh, he meets just about everyone uh, who's, who's who was involved. This is 1867 now. He meets just about everyone who was involved in the leader, leadership of the campaign in Canada. Um, and, and he's reporting back to Macdonald. He's reporting McMicken. back to McMicken, who was reporting to directly to Macdonald. So this is the the, the line. I don't want to give the whole story away, David. I'll let our readers read it. about this other fascinating fellow? I mean, we all know John Le Carré, but you talk about Henri Le Caron. Who is he? Henri Le Caron, yeah. I mean, what a character. Um, I mean, Charles Clark and Henri Le Caron uh, are amazing characters. Uh, there, there should be Netflix Netflix series about both of them. Henri Le Caron was a very... I agree completely. <laughs> Henri Le Caron was a very different person. Uh, he came... This uh, this Frenchman actually came from Colchester in Essex in England, <laughs> um, and he, uh, he he had a very restless youth. Uh, and he was he ran away from home several times, and he eventually wound up as a teenager in Paris. And he he uh, he, he links up with some of the uh, American community in Paris, 
Uh, he's also got a very fine singing voice, and he and he sings in very, various uh, uh, churches and so on uh, in in Paris. And he decides to uh, to go to the United States and join uh, the Union Army during the Civil War. And according to his memoirs, he just reinvents himself for a lark. He's been in in Paris for a while. He can speak uh, passable French. And uh, he reinvents himself as Henri Lacaron. This had nothing to do with Fenians or anything. You know, he just decided to do it. Um, and so Thomas Billis Beach was his original name. Thomas Billis Beach becomes Henri Lacaron, joins the Union Army, and entirely by accident um, runs into John O'Neill, uh, who is a Fenian, not a very well-known Fenian at this stage, uh, in Nashville. And John O'Neill will be the leader of the raid into the, into the Niagara Peninsula in June of 1866. Even before then, uh, Henri Lacaron has written to his father in England and said, uh, you know, I'm mixing with these Fenians here and they're planning to invade Canada. Perhaps the folks in, in London should know about this. And his father goes to the Home Office with this information. And it's not taken very seriously because... Um, the Home Office is inundated. The Colonial Office is, indicated, is, is inundated. The Foreign Office is inundated with informers who are basically out to make a buck and whose information is suspect at best. So this is just filed away. Then he returns Le Caron after um, the Ridgeway raid, when now O'Neill is a big deal. I mean, O'Neill will become the president of the Fenian Brotherhood in uh, December of 1867. And in that same month, uh, Le Caron is back in England, and he offers his services to uh, the British Secret Service, which was very short-lived. It only lasted a few months, um, and uh, they accept. So uh, he goes back to the United States um, and starts to rise up the Fenian ranks through his friendship with John O'Neill. And rather than have this circuitous sort of route of reporting uh, to the Foreign Office, who report to the Home Office, who report to the Colonial Office, who report to the Governor General, who reports to MacDonald, who reports to McMicken. They short-circuit it. Um, and, um, and Henri Lacaron contacts uh, MacDonald uh, and offers his services. So he's actually double-dipping now. He's getting paid by the British and by the Canadians when this works out. Entirely proper. MacDonald is initially very sceptical. He says a man who is... Uh, who was willing to betray his his comrades and may well be willing to betray us. And he wanted nothing in writing. He wanted this guy fully checked out. McMicken was ecstatic because by this time, um, we're now looking at um, uh, uh, mid-1868. By this time, Charles Clark's uh, reputation has plummeted. Charles Clark has been fired for, from the secret police for reasons that are fascinating, but which we won't go into today. Um, Henri Lacaron just falls into his into um, McMicken's lap, and this he is he's our best card, writes McMicken, and indeed he was. Henri Lacaron will rise to become the adjutant general of the Irish Republican Army, as it was called back then. He is actually the person who distributes the arms along the Quebec, uh, Vermont, um, and New York border. He's distributing the arms by night, and he is writing to uh, McMicken by day, saying exactly where the arms are. Uh, 
and uh, he keeps the Canadian government closely informed of what's going on in John O'Neill's mind. The problem he faced was that O'Neill kept changing his mind because O'Neill was caught between the need for imminent action to keep morale up and the fear of failure. And uh, and he was McNeil, sorry, uh, O'Neill was caught in the kind of catch twenty two. You needed more funds uh, to launch a successful second attempt at Canada, uh, but to do that you had to demonstrate strength. But without the strength, you couldn't raise the funds. So O'Neill was constantly fundraising and constantly saying, "Okay, the invasion is going to take place in um, the spring of 1869." Oh, we're not quite ready. It'll be the summer. No, it'll be the fall. So, so even though uh, Henri Lacaran is right next to O'Neill and reporting directly to the Canadian government, reading O'Neill's mind turned out to be very, very difficult. But David, surely people like O'Neill must have been, must have grown fidgety because they they probably had a sense that their actions were being conveyed across the border that there was leaking in the Fenian Brotherhood, and that people like Le Caron or, uh, and other spies were, were actually doing their jobs. Is, is that your contention, that at the end of the day, these raids, these occasional raids in Canada West, Canada East, uh, uh, New Brunswick, uh, failed because they were ultimately derailed by these spy activities of the Canadians? Uh, I would say not quite. Um, they were certainly... Um... But they failed for broader reasons than that. Right. Uh, and I just say some of those broader reasons include their false assumptions that the Americans would stand aside uh, or and that there would be the French Canadians would stand aside and so on. But also, and I think I think in many respects, the critical factor in the failure of the Fenians was the American government, um, which uh, which moved reluctantly uh, and and hesitantly against uh, the the Fenians. But did move against them um, and blocked reinforcements from coming into Canada, which was the great hope of the Fenians. The secret police, though, um, uh, did ultimately succeed in preparing the Canadian government for the raid that took place in 1870 at Eccles Hill and the raid that broke the back of the Fenian Brotherhood. Uh, it um, it took place faster than uh, than Henri La Caron thought it would. Uh, O'Neill gave three days' notice. Um, Le Caron thought he would have ten days at least uh, to tell the Canadians so that they could prepare for this. So it was a hurried response from the Canadian uh, government. Um, uh, so it was an important factor, but it wasn't the only factor. Yeah, this was in Quebec, the the Eccles Hills. There was also a rumor of activity on the Manitoba border in the wake of the uh, Riel. Uh, resistance, the Red River Resistance in 1870. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, O'Neill, I describe in the in the book as a monomaniac. I mean, there was no stopping O'Neill. I mean, he 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 was he was obsessively dedicated to breaking Britain's North American Empire. And after he was arrested and imprisoned uh, for his participation in the Eccles Hill raid, arrested and imprisoned by the Americans, um, and. In the trial, he said, I was wrong. I realized I was wrong. Uh, had there been any chance of success, you know, I, I, uh, I, had, had there been a chance of success, no regrets, I would do it again if I thought there was a chance of success. But I now realize there just isn't. And I, I re- retract the invasion strategy completely. 
Well, after the real resistance, uh, or during the real resistance, he comes to think that hmm, there is now a chance of success. And he tries to persuade the Fenian Brotherhood uh, to link up with the Métis. I mean, this, is, this he believes, is the Achilles heel uh, uh, of the British Empire in North America. If you can link up with the Métis, the, the West goes to the United States, ultimately. This, is, this was his aim. And, and the Fenian Brotherhood rejects him. They, they, they've had enough. They say no. So he organizes his own freelance raid uh, in Manitoba, which turns out to be a disaster. Right, right. Okay, let's scope out a little bit. I mean, um, I'll invite our, our readers to, 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 to get your book and read your book and discover the all the wonderful details that you've brought out. Um, a lot of, what does all this mean? A lot of younger historians have been very critical of, of Canadian historiography for not talking enough about transnational phenomena. I personally don't really think they have much of a case, but do you see this history as transnational, the fact that Canada is caught in this Irish uh, Irish affair? Absolutely. And I agree with you. I think uh, transnational history has been uh, part of the Canadian historiographical scene for quite a while, and quite rightly so. This is, uh, this is a transnational story, and it's one of the reasons why it's such a challenge to write, because you, you've got archival material in uh, the United States, uh, in Britain, and in Ireland, uh, at all kinds of levels, you know, from um, from Fenian letters to diplomatic correspondence, and you're always uh, trying to make connections and showing how events in uh, uh, how events in Ireland uh, uh, ricochet in Canada, and they do over and over and over again. The reverse is also true. I mean, when uh, when uh, the Irish uh, when Irish nationalists learned about the brief Fenian success uh, on the Niagara Peninsula, they were ecstatic, which is very interesting. Even the constitutional nationalists who had rejected Fenianism were ecstatic because Irish lads had defeated the Redcoats in arms, as they saw it. It wasn't quite as simple as that, but that was the myth, you know. Um, and that, that tells me something. That tells me that this, this Fenian belief that if they could hold on to, to, to territory in, in Canada for long enough, not only would they have been joined by uh, thousands of uh, Irish Americans, but they would indeed have inspired uh, the Irish back in Ireland. Uh, but at, at so many levels, you know, the shooting of a policeman by Fenians um, in, in Manchester, near, uh, yeah, in Manchester, has huge repercussions uh, in Canada. Uh, this is this is absolutely a transnational story. By transnational, again, for the, for those who may not be aware of the distinction, transnational means really looking at phenomena that will affect multiple countries, multiple communities across borders. We're not talking necessarily of international relations, which means uh, basically capital to capital kind of relationship, which is more more um, typical of diplomatic history or international relations kind of stuff. David, at the very outset, you talked about. Um, how Johnny MacDonald kept things quiet. I want to finish off with that. What do you mean? What do you mean that he decided to keep things quiet? MacDonald wanted to avoid a backlash against Irish Catholic Canadians. And he knew that a backlash, Canada was a hair trigger away from a backlash. And indeed, to some extent, a backlash existed. But he was really, MacDonald's task was. Uh, to keep very close watch on the Fenians, 
uh, in Canada as well as the United States, um, uh, but not to overreact um, and certainly not to whip up a populist storm of anti-Catholicism. Uh, that, that was the very last thing he wanted. I think people forget the, the degree to which we were not on the verge of a civil war, but there were real tensions between Catholics and Protestants in the late 19th century in this country. Absolutely. And it's, I'm glad you, you highlight that because it can be difficult for us in our relatively secular world, uh, at least in Canada, uh, to underestimate uh, the, the power, uh, the emotional power and the political power uh, of religion in the mid 19th century. And um, MacDonald, as, as you know very well, Patrice, given your own work on him, combined principle and pragmatism. Um, in this and so many other areas. And the pragmatic element here was you don't want to backlash against Irish Catholics. He'd been working very hard as well uh, to court the Irish Catholic vote. Uh, I love this story about, about MacDonald uh, and McGee uh, going down to uh, Prescott uh, yes. to fight the by-election. And one, one uh, person says, oh, it's, it's the pretended orange man and the pretended Catholic. You know, well, not strike, I mean, but, McGee was a real Catholic and a serious Catholic, but I love the uh, the description of MacDonald as a pretended orange man. This member of the Orange Order uh, hobnobbed with Catholic priests and bishops. I mean, he was in close he was in close contact with uh, Bishop John Joseph Lynch in Toronto, trying to win Irish Catholic votes for the Conservative Party, and to a significant extent, succeeding. He didn't want to lose that vote. He could have used it to his advantage. I mean, he could have banked on the orange vote in Ontario, in parts of the Maritimes, and won on that, but he always resisted that temptation. He knew that there would be no future for the country if that happened. Yep, he actually says that to one of his Catholic uh, correspondents, uh, pr almost word for word. He said, this is when it came to releasing Fenian prisoners. Um and he said the easy uh, Fenian prisoners in Canadian jails. And he said the easy course for me uh, would be to side with the orange men and uh, keep their support. Um, uh, but I'm doing this to uh, paraphrasing now. I'm basically doing this to take the heat out of the situation. There's so much Catholic pressure to release the prisoners. Um, and I'm on your side was the message he was giving the Catholics. You know, right. I mean, he, he was on anyone's side who would vote for him. I think. Of course, he's a politician. He's a politician. <laughs> yes, yes. David, I want to I want to give you this opportunity to tell us about how the Dictionary of Canadian Biography is doing. Thanks for asking. What's your What's your What's What's your report? Uh, my report is <laughs> uh, is that morale is very high. Uh, that we've just received more money from uh, from the federal government from Heritage. Uh, with a possibility of a four-year renewal. Uh, so we're delighted about that. Wonderful. Um, and we are also engaged in a fundraising campaign um, because inflation has eaten away. The, the money we get now from the government um, is a, a million dollars a year. We've had that since the 1980s when it was $2.37 million by present standards. So we've actually taken a big cut. We're, try we're working on ways to, to persuade the, the government to take us back to early 1980s levels of support. But morale is high uh, in both offices. Uh, I have very good relation with Alain Laberge, uh, the, uh, the co-editor in uh, Laval. And we've also altered what we're doing. And in, um, 
in some respects. This was one of my initiatives uh, in conjunction with uh, Alain Laberge. Um, instead of simply continuing with a chronological approach, we're now in, now producing biographies from the, of people who died during the 1940s. Um, although we're still still publishing those uh, people who were who died in the 1930s, but instead of of, of um, maintaining only a chronological approach, we are now um, dividing our biographies. Uh, half of them will continue along chronological lines, and the other half uh, will consist of people we missed from the past uh, and uh, people in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, for whom there are really good historians out there who can uh, produce uh, top-class work, uh, and also in the process to redress some of the imbalances in the in the DCB when it comes to the underrepresentation of women and of indigenous peoples and of racialized minorities. Um, we're all on board with this. Uh, we have some terrific biographies in the works, actually, um, and uh, it's gone from strength to strength. So uh, a good report. Onwards and upwards with the DCB. Absolutely, I'm a huge fan, and I we don't we don't normally give people a chance to make a plug, but the Dictionary of Canadian Biography certainly is worth it. David, thank you so much for sharing your ideas and your insights with me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Patrice. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I was speaking with David A. Wilson about his book, Canadian Spy Story, Irish Revolutionaries and the Secret Police. It's published by McGill Queen's University Press. Before we go, I want to remind our listeners that this podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society, whose annual membership makes everything we do possible. Thank you. There's a way for you, the listener, to support this podcast. Please go to champlainsociety.ca to make a quick donation. The Champlain Society is a registered charity and will provide you with a tax receipt for any donation over $20. Any support goes a long way as the Champlain Society receives no government support for its operations, and that always surprises people. And don't forget to support this podcast by telling all your friends in whatever way you prefer. My name is Patrice Tutil. This interview was recorded on May 17th, 2022, when hopes are up that the pandemic is now ending. Jessica Schmidt is our producer. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time.